0: Father, thank you for your love, deep and vast and wide. Thank you for your plan for us, loving us before the creation of the world. Thank you, Jesus, for executing that plan and making our life with you possible, redeeming us by your blood. Thank you, Spirit, for applying that to our lives and sealing it and marking us as people who know God, sons and daughters of God. We worship you today, gladly and freely. It is our inestimable privilege. Our thoughts, in fact, are flooded with awe and wonder. We thank you for the peace that's ours that passes all understanding. In the strong name of Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. Okay, this is the time in our service when typically at Gateway we pass Christ's peace to one another. I want to give you some instructions for this peace passing period. I want you to (laughs) speak to at least one person that you don't know well. And this is easy, even if you're shy, because you've got a script. You don't have to make it up. So you say to them, peace of the Lord be with you, and you mean it, and they say to you. But they do it much more energetically than that. Or you can say, good morning, how are you? I'm Ed, but you won't say Ed, you'll say your name. And then beyond that, I want you, if you can, to mill around That's more what the atmosphere of a first-century synagogue would have been, and we're going to enter one of those this morning a little bit. So I want you to mill around. I want you to do some business. Now, your business today is passing Christ's peace, and I don't want you to sit down until I uh, ask you to. So continue to mill around and talk. As you're milling around, we're going to be celebrating a fantastic mercy meal today. So I'm going to ask for uh, just to expedite it, If those of you in the back could move forward a little bit, let's get in and up as much as we can while you're milling. One more piece of instruction. We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 13, 14, and 15 today. It's a lot of material. We're trying to cover the book of Acts this summer. And it's a spectacular book, and we don't have time. We're not taking the time. Take deeper dives into very many of the passages. We're just trying to get a sweep of the story because as we've said repeatedly over the last several weeks, it's our story. So I've got actually... Please use it. By the way, don't feel bad. I ran off reams of paper this morning. I mean, you'll feel like an Old Testament scholar reading a scroll. Big old pieces of paper. I've got Acts 13, 14, and 15 printed out. Only 25 copies. So share with a couple of people around you. But if you didn't bring a Bible and don't have one on your phone, I'd love for you to be able to see it. So come up here to the stage. Let's get all of those copies taken, or I'll feel guilty about how much paper I used. And I'm going to put them right here. So if you don't have a Bible, come grab that if you would and, and share it with one or two people around you. So your instructions, you're passing Christ's peace, you're milling around, and you're coming to grab your portion of the Scripture. If you don't have one, okay, so pass Christ's peace to one another. I've got some more copies up here of Acts 13 through 15. Okay, let's make our way to a seat. More copies of Acts 13 through 15. Let's make our way to a seat. It would not have been too unlike that in an ancient Near Eastern or European synagogue, and there would have, exactly as there is, there would have still been something happening while the speaker or the president... Tried to convene. The convening could have been them introducing their voice like I'm doing, or it could have been the ringing of a bell, as it was in some cases. In some synagogues, they couldn't afford chairs, so people would have continued to stand around while the word was delivered, but usually there were seats. There was also, in the synagogue setting, sometimes there was a separation between men and women. More often, there was a separation between those who were Jewish and those who were not of Jewish birth but God-fearers. They would have been separated by a wall or in a different room or sometimes in a different part of the room. They would have begun with a reading from the Torah, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And most scholars believe that they read that on a three-year cycle. So they would read through the Torah on a three-year cycle, and then they would read, a complimentary reading from the Psalms or from the prophets that would go with the toradic reading of the day. This is the context into which the Apostle Paul would go when he went to a new city to, to share the story of Jesus and what had happened. You know, our Savior, when we've been looking for for like generations, hey, he came and here's the deal, we killed him. But three days later, he rose from the dead. Here's what it means. It means that all that we've been celebrating, including the Passover and the great deliverance, it was in him. In fact, the lamb that our ancestors slain and they put the blood around the door, that that actually was his blood. That was all pointing to him. By the way, that's the meal we celebrate today. And that was their message throughout the ancient Near East and Europe. Shockingly crowds began to respond to this, many of them Greek-speaking Gentiles. It would start in local synagogue settings. Apostle Paul would deliver this message. People would be drawn in just by, you know, the magnetism, but I think something more than that. We'll get to that in a minute. They would be drawn in, and crowds began to respond, but there was also opposition, So let's remember a couple of things as we look at Acts. First of all, if you read Acts, and parts of it can be boring and dry, but parts of Acts are thrilling. And it has profound application for you and I because, as I said, it's our story. This isn't like reading you know, Alexander the Great or Joan of Arc or Julius Caesar, somebody who did fantastic things that we have nothing in common with and will never repeat. This is like reading the story of our great-great-grandparents. These folks have the same spiritual DNA that you and I have. As you read Acts also, and as we look through it, I want you to try to avoid two ditches. So there are two dangers on either side of reading this. On the one hand, on ditch number one, you can read what happened in Acts. It must mean that it, it all happens exactly like that for us. And let's remember as we read it, this is descriptive. Well, Dr. Luke is saying, here's what happened. He's not saying it's going to happen exactly this way for you. And there are churches today that make that mistake. Okay, it's not legitimate unless it's repeated just like this. What he's done is he's collected all of the home run stories and he said, holy smokes, this is what Jesus did through his first people. And look at how it blew up. Look at how it grew. This is awesome. So again, this is our great grandparents. Their lives may not necessarily be like ours, but in many ways it will. The other ditch to avoid, on the other side, You have those who who take this as exaggerated tales. No, this is to be read as literal history. That's the way it was written. That's the way the church has understood it pretty much always. There's always been a tendency to question, especially the supernatural parts of this story, and that has been especially the case since the end of the 19th century, the late 1800s. But I believe the text stands up. If you study this text, I believe it stands up under that scrutiny. This is history. This happened. Today, we're going to try to look at three things, and we'll do it quickly. First of all, we're going to see hints. We'll spend the most time here, even though it may be the least interesting. We're going to spend the most time talking about hints concerning how and why the Jesus movement grew and spread, because that's part of Luke's point in writing Acts. Now, if you've been here in previous weeks, you will remember that this is the second volume of Dr. Luke's work. He wrote first a biography of Jesus, which we know as the Gospel of Luke, and that word gospel just means good news. This is crazy good news. So he wrote the Gospel of Luke, Biography of Jesus, and then he wrote Acts, kind of the story of the first church. And part of his point here is, hey, look, this is how it grew. So we're going to look at that today, some hints at how and why it grew as fantastically as it did. By the way, I may mention this again and reserve the right, but I, I read a statistic a number of weeks ago when I was doing some reading about Acts. I've been unable to confirm this anywhere else, but it's got to be close to the truth. This author said, that a couple of weeks after Jesus died and rose again, there were about 2,500 people who were followers of Jesus who were saying, Amen. By the end of the third century, there were 25 million. Something happened. <laughs> so we're going to look at today some hints about what, how, and why. And then we're going to hear today a really extraordinary story. Bill Russell is going to preach next week, and he'll tee off on this a little bit. We're going to hear today how the gospel message, the good news, the kind of core of what we believe, how it was preserved in the face of what might be. I know we think there are many obstacles today to faith. This might be the most serious challenge that it faced because the movement was so young. And we're going to hear how the message was preserved. And then finally, we're going to get a personal exhortation, a personal challenge, a personal encouragement today. So we'll start with, How and why this grew, just keys to growth. Let's uh, kick this off with prayer. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would speak into open hearts today. Lord, we have gathered in the face of extraordinarily busy weeks. But we've gathered by faith because we really want to experience you and see you. And for some of us, Lord, because we've just blown it or we've taken too many blows over the last couple of weeks, our heart is not very open. We ask mercy. We ask that you would be gentle. And we ask that you would pry us open, Lord. Penetrate beyond our defenses. Massage yourself into and through our reluctance. And speak to us today. I pray for us Lord. Specifically for an affirmation. Of who we are. This is who we are. I pray for. Internal celebration of your story. What you do among people like us. I also pray Lord for. Reminder. Of the good news. Lord I ask that we would hear. Hear the challenge that you have for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so allow me uh, five or six minutes. Let's just walk through the story real quick, just get the details, and then we'll unpack how and why this grew. So it starts with Chapter 13. A group of leaders are together in the city of Antioch. So Antioch, I don't have the pointer today, but if you look at the far right, that's Antioch, that's Syrian Antioch. So they make their way over to the coast, and then they sail out to Cyprus, which is in the middle of the Mediterranean. They go to the city, first of all, of Paphos, I think, and there they meet a guy named Bar-Jesus, isn't that an interesting name, who is a sorcerer, and he is skeptical, to say the least, of these new missionaries. The proconsul, who's essentially the governor of the area, uh, Sergius Paulus, and archaeological evidence has identified this guy as being the proconsul at this part of Cyprus at this point in history. Sergius Paulus wants to hear the good news. I mean, he wants to hear this story. He's heard whispers. So Barnabas and Paul are going to go in and talk to Sergius Paulus. And I believe that Bar-Jesus, he's also called Elamus in this. One of those is a Hebrew name, one of them is a Greek name. I believe he has the sense that he 's going to lose a little leverage with the proconsul. He's been an advisor to the proconsul, so he begins to I don't know what he's doing, but he's trying to distract the proconsul so they can't really hear Paul and Barnabas's message. And this is a neat story to me, because I think what Paul does is if those of you who remember Paul's story, I mean, Paul gets knocked out and becomes a Christian. He's on his way to Damascus one time this is years ago, this is probably 15 years ago at this point. He sees a blinding light. He hears a voice. And his voice is Jesus and says, Paul, stop what you're doing. Gets knocked off his horse and Paul is literally blind. And Paul has to later be prayed for and something like scales fall off of his eyes and he can see and people begin to disciple him and tell him the story of Jesus and completely change the trajectory of Paul's life. Well, I think the Apostle Paul, you know, this is still a little early in Paul's whole missionary journeys, anyway, I think Paul knows. Hey, I know God can blind people because He did it to me. Hey, you sorcerer, you're blind, and He was. He goes blind, and the proconsul sees this and goes, "Ah, uh, I believe in that God. <laughs> tell me more." And so they do. They tell the proconsul, and it, it seems like he becomes a Christ follower. From there, they go to. Pisidian Antioch so they go to a couple places on Cyprus and then they sail over to and there's another Antioch you'll see in the sort of right hand side of your screen that's Presidian Antioch they go there and in Presidian Antioch the scene that Luke describes for us they're in a synagogue setting so it was much like folks were milling around the synagogue president comes up ding or says be seated or whatever it is and they're seated and they do the reading for the day I suspect that they've already arranged this with Paul and Barnabas, probably. But it was often the case, what they would typically do is they would do a reading, and then they'd have one, two, or as many as five people come up and give brief expositions about what the reading that day, what they heard. So they do this reading, and then they invite the guest speakers. Would you like to come up and speak? They don't know what they're in for, so the Apostle Paul comes up to speak to this You know, synagogue, they're minding their own business. They're in the middle of their lives up in Pisidian Antioch. And he gets up to speak to them. And what he essentially does is he reviews the entire Old Testament, their whole story. But he shows them how the whole thing, various details in it, point to Jesus. Or there are ways in which, you know, you felt like this was happening. You thought David was the man, but look, he's not really the man, and he's using the Old Testament to prove that. In fact, these passages... You know, it looks like they might be about David, but they can't be about David because look at this. You know who they're about? They're about Jesus. Guess what? We killed him. But three days later, he rose from the dead. There are all kind of people. Some of them you know. You know your second cousin. He saw it. And so afterwards, several of them began to follow Paul and Barnabas around. They want to hear more. They invite him to come back the next week. But there is opposition stirred up. There's a serious negative sentiment to Paul and Barnabas and they end up needing to leave Pisidian Antioch and they go to Iconium and Iconium now you can see that they're moving inland by the way this part of Asia Minor at the time was called Galatia and those of you who know the Bible will know that much later the Apostle Paul wrote a letter to this group of churches it's called Galatians so they go to Iconium and in Iconium You know, again, there's response, and again, there's opposition. They're run out of town. They hear a rumor that they're probably going to be stoned, so, you know, they decide to leave. And from there, they go to Lystra. In Lystra, they enter the city of Lystra, and unlike most places, most places what they do is they go to a city and they go to a religious center because there are people there who are obviously seeking, I guess. Bill Russell and I were talking about this this week. In this part of Asia Minor... All of the religious centers that Paul goes to, he consistently goes to synagogues. But as he gets further away, the synagogues get more sparse and he, he just goes and finds any religious center. So he goes into, often to religious centers, but in Lystra he doesn't. In Lystra what happens is I think God gives him an opportunity and there's a man who's been crippled from birth. Paul sees him and Paul recognizes that this man wants something to happen for himself. And there's faith in him. So Paul essentially says, hey, I've... I know Jesus did this. I've seen Peter do this. I've seen some of the other apostles do this. I believe, God, you can do anything. Let's give it a try. In Jesus' name, stand up and walk, and this guy does. He stands up and walks, and obviously, crowd gathers, and they want to hear about this. And as they do, they make the mistake, these folks, of thinking that Paul and Barnabas are Zeus and Hermes, which are two Roman gods, Greek gods, both. They have different names for the Greek world and the Roman world. Interestingly, both documentary evidence and archaeological evidence has demonstrated that there was a strong Zeus and Hermes cult in this part of Galatia. This has been confirmed repeatedly. In fact, they have found a temple to one of them, and archaeologists are looking for the temple to the other. They're they're sure that they will find it. These are often gods that were very separated, but in this one area of Galatia, they kind of brought them together somehow and they seem to be worshiping them and they see Paul and Barnabas do this. They've never seen anything like this. They think, holy smokes, this is Zeus and Hermes in the flesh. So they, uh, spontaneous worship, they begin to worship them. They get a priest to go out and grab an animal. They're going to bring it and sacrifice it to Paul and Barnabas. And Paul and Barnabas are like, wait, you got to be kidding. Stop, wait, stop. To get their attention. Paul and Barnabas get into the middle of the town square, and they begin to rip their clothes, which is an ancient Near East was a sign of mourning. And look, this is a terrible thing that you're doing. We're not gods. We're p- people just like you. No, what we're about is we're about worshiping the true God, the true and living God. And again, they begin to tell the story of Jesus, and they get an openness, but they also get opposition. From there, they return back to their Antioch, and they report the whole story to the church in Antioch. And there's great rejoicing, because everywhere they went, there seems to be this small group of Jesus people established. Now, after they get back to Antioch, a group comes from Jerusalem, and you'll see Jerusalem down at the bottom of your screen. The center of the leadership of the church was still in Jerusalem at this time. And a group comes from Jerusalem, comes up to Antioch because they've heard rumors about what is happening through Paul and Barnabas' preaching, and they start teaching the church in Antioch, you know, this isn't really good. These people have got to become full Jews before they can become Christ followers. They've got to be circumcised, and they've got to follow all the law. And this was the, the gospel challenge that we are talking about. We'll, okay, we'll get to that in a minute. All right, how about real quick, let's just dial through what are some keys to growth, and we'll save the punchline for the end. So first of all, I think one of the keys is the movement had a diverse and dedicated leadership base. If you look back at chapter 13, at the very beginning of chapter 13, it says in the church in Antioch there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Mennean who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. In other words, there was a Cypriot, there was an African, there was a man from the ruling class who had grown up with the uh, Roman-appointed ruler of Palestine. It was a diverse group socioeconomically. It was a diverse group racially. And from the beginning, a diverse group of people were attracted to Jesus. And that was the leadership base for the early movement. Secondly, I'd say the principal ambassadors of the movement were fearless and aggressive. I mean, that's obvious. If you read this section, especially if you read the section, Bill is going to talk about. Bill's going to cover what you know most Bible commentarians call the second missionary journey. This one was the first missionary journey. And they go to city after city. Many of these cities are completely unknown to Paul and Barnabas. And they find ways to communicate the message of God's love and grace and the story of Jesus. They just they make it up. They faced opposition and even death. At one point, the Apostle Paul is stoned and he's taken outside of the city and left for dead. But they continue to go back in and preach and speak. They were fearless and aggressive. I would also say, thirdly, the principal ambassadors of the movement seem to have been very strategic. Like I said, in every city they go to, they begin seeking out religious centers. And usually they begin with synagogues because the people. With, this is the easiest audience for them. I think they suspected this was low-hanging fruit, and usually it was. Even if you look at the trip itinerary, you can see that there was strategic thinking involved. They don't from here all the way over to Rome and then back up to Pisidian Antioch and then, you know, down to there It's very strategic. They're thinking economically even. I would say, fourthly, the movement had able communicators. I would encourage you sometime to go through chapter 13 and think of that as a speech from the Apostle Paul, to, which it was, to a group of mostly Jewish and some Gentile, God-fearers, in a synagogue in Asia Minor. It's powerful. This is also true of Barnabas and also true of Peter. The movement had able communicators. They begin with what is known. Uh, They move convincingly through the incredible story of Jesus' death and resurrection. They use many Old Testament references with the Jews, and they use natural philosophy with the Greeks, and the crowds are moved. There is consistent and amazing growth. So pause for a second let you catch your breath. In spite of the fact that there were obstacles and opposition, constantly. There was growth, but there were obstacles. There was opposition constantly. For instance, there were cross-cultural tensions. There were misunderstandings between local peoples and themselves. There were difficulties in travel, etc. And then there was, of course, the, the world they've entered is a world of religious pluralism to the extreme. Lots of different religions. They confronted many gods and many different kinds of worship. In fact, in Lystra, after they performed a miracle, of course, remember, the crowd believes that they are themselves God. I'd say third, their message engendered persecution. It's hard to think of facing anything more directly oppositional. In several cases, folks want their lives. Fourth, there's serious internal opposition that had to be confronted. We haven't gotten there yet, but just how their message is challenged by the Jewish Christians from Jerusalem, and, and they want to change what Paul and Barnabas have been teaching. And finally, I would say there were personal conflicts. Now, we're not going to deal with this much in our passage, but Bill will a little more next week. But in chapter 13, verse 13, if you've got the Bible open, it says this. This is an innocent little note, but it says in this, from Paphos, so they're back in Cyprus. Paul and his companion sailed to Perga and Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. So this John is actually John Mark, and it's almost certainly mm-hmm. the young man who would end up writing the book of Mark. And he's traveling with Paul and Barnabas and is, is their assistant. And at this point in the journey, he goes back home. We later find out that this has really upset the apostle Paul and, and he thinks that John Mark has left because he couldn't stand the rigors of the travel. or We're not told why, but Paul and Barnabas end up in a schism over this. They split, and they don't go on the second missionary journey together because Barnabas wants to take John Mark with them. He believes in second chances, and Paul says, no way. I'm not taking that guy again because he abandoned us when we needed him the most. There are personal conflicts. So here's the point of all of that. If you've missed everything so far, don't miss this. I don't think the growth of the church can be explained at a purely human level. There's too much standing against it. Here's what I would say. The growth of this early movement, they went from 2,500 people to 25 million. The growth of this early movement can only be explained as a sovereign move of God. This is God moving on our behalf in part to make sure you and I would be sitting here today hearing this, preparing the way. Now, apologies if that makes it sound like it's all about us. It's certainly not, but there are lots of other us's. And this is a movement of God to ensure that he has a people for himself from every tribe and language and tongue that are going to praise him. First of all, we see this in the way the people responded to the message and just all over the place. They respond believingly. But in chapter 13, verse 49, there's one of those summary statements. It says this, the word of the Lord spread through the whole region. Everywhere they went, there are people responding. So you see the sovereign move of God just in the way people are responding as they hear this message. In this section, we hear more about the opposition than we do the response, but it's clear that in every city where Paul and Barnabas went, a significant group of Christ followers has been established. Second thing I would say is you see this in the dependence of the disciples. And you see this repeatedly. But I think the best example might be at the very beginning of our section. Chapter 13, verses 2 and 3. Listen to this. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Hey, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul, also called Paul, for the the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. I mean, this is serious focus and dedication and dependence on God. Finally, I'd say that you see the sovereign move of God in the power encounters. On Cyprus, there's Jesus the sorcerer, who wants to disrupt, and he ends up offering Paul and Barnabas a megaphone because they have this literal power encounter. There's the power of the world and the power of God, and we see who wins. And then in Lystra, again, they heal a man who was lame from birth. And this seems to be like the first spiritual encounter. They haven't even gone to a synagogue yet. And crowds of people obviously gather around them. They they even think they want to worship them. This gives, again, Paul and Barnabas the, the platform to tell the story of Jesus. Certainly there's human talent, strategic thinking, and elbow grease connected to the growth of the church, but the growth of the movement can't be explained apart from a sovereign move of God. That's why in chapter 14, verses 26 through 28, when they go back to Antioch, their home base, this is Luke's sort of summary of how they report this. From Italia, they sailed back to Antioch where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And they stayed there a long time with the disciples. Okay, so what this means for Gateway, just a real quickie. Number one, I think it means that we need to be strategic. If you're visiting with us, if you're a guest, thanks for coming. We're at a critical juncture in the life of our church. We're in the early stages of constructing a building. We are praying right now about getting a loan from a bank. And when we secure that loan, we're going to break ground on our property, which if you leave here, go back toward Route 50, those big red obnoxious signs that say Gateway Community Church, that's our property. And we're going to build a building over there that we believe will honor God for generations to come. We need to be strategic. We need to have a diversity of gifts and experience and ethnicity here. We can't reach our area without having a diversity of gifts and, frankly, a diversity of ethnicity. We need to be fearless and aggressive. We need to be able communicators. And we'll face obstacles, and we're going to have to work hard. But more than anything, we've got to cry out to a sovereign God. If God doesn't move, we will not move. If God doesn't move, we will not move. So we've got to cry out to a sovereign God and ask for his hand to move on our behalf. Okay, the second major thing we say we're going to talk about is the preservation of the gospel. And, of course, the controversy is this group from Jerusalem gets sent up to Antioch. And, well, it's questionable whether or not they actually get sent. They may have gone on their own. They go up to Antioch and they begin to teach the Christians in Antioch that In order to continue in this way, you've got to be circumcised and you've got to follow the whole law. And Barnabas and Paul began to dispute with them and say, no, 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 no. Look, the whole law of Moses, all of us being circumcised, by the way, generationally, that did not work for us. We didn't find the grace of God. What we found was working really hard and trying to be very religious and doing a lot of ritual and it did not change our hearts. And repeatedly, generation after generation, we turned away from God. Why would we lay that same yoke on them? What we've had is we've had the Messiah come who fulfilled the law. Everything that was written there, he did it. He was it. So why would we have anything but Jesus? And this was the core of the gospel in contention. Key moment comes in chapter 15. And I'm going to read verses 7 through 11 because this is rich. This is the Apostle Peter who ultimately defends what Paul and Barnabas have said. So they have this dispute. The debate goes back to the church in Jerusalem and they take it to the church leaders. And you know what are they going to decide? So if you would, let's go old school and stand with me out of reverence for God's Word. I'm going to read chapter 15, verses 7 through 11. This is Peter. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, and believe. Now most of you know this story. This is the story recorded for us a, a few chapters earlier where Peter has this vision of all this food that he thinks he's not supposed to eat, and God says, go eat it. It's all from me. And at exactly that moment, exactly that moment, coincidentally, he said using air quotes, somebody knocks on the door and they want... Peter to come speak to a household full of Gentiles. Under ordinary circumstances, he would not have done so, but he's so addled by what he's just seen, he goes, stammers over to this house and speaks to these Gentiles, and revival breaks out. So you know that this has happened. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? No. We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. You may be seated. And in large part because of this, that has been the message of the church for generations. It is through the grace of the Lord Jesus that you and I find a connection with God. It's not our religious observance. It's not our effort. It's not our work. It's not our sincerity. It's not our being good. It's through the grace of the Lord Jesus. That's the message that these guys preached, the generation after them preached, for generations to come, and we're still preaching today here at Gateway. Let's end with a personal application. So how was Paul able to accomplish all that he did? Sometimes I feel like I'm barely able to get through a week. He wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, and not only so, but much of Asia Minor and Europe was evangelized. Churches all over the place started because of the life and work and prayer and preaching of the Apostle Paul. How? And I think it's very simple. Paul was all in. I told you earlier that this area of the world at the time was known as Galatia. Paul later would write these churches a reminder of all that he had taught them. In Galatians chapter 2, he actually gives a short testimony. He tells his own journey. But at the end of that, in verse 20 of chapter 2 of Galatians, Paul says this, Look, you want to know about me, bottom line? I've been crucified with Christ. I am so identified with Jesus, my Savior. It's as if I was on the cross with Him, dying with Him. In fact, the worst parts of me, the sinful parts of me were, they died with Him. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. You're not looking at the Apostle Paul. You're looking at a completely different person whose life has taken such a radically different trajectory. It's as if I'm not even here but what's here is is the life of Jesus flowing through me. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Paul was all in. I think this is why Paul gets frustrated with John Mark, because John Mark is not all in. I'm guessing, but I think Paul senses that John Mark is not yet. He doesn't have enough patience to let Mark grow into who he's going to be in Christ. And he's thinking, look, buddy, it's all or nothing. And it is. This is, in fact, the teaching of Jesus. Jesus would be asked at one point in his teaching, hey, Jesus, yes, you in the back, what's the greatest commandment? And that's a tricky question. That sounds like the kind of question that Jesus wouldn't answer, but he did. He actually answered that question, okay? I'll tell you, the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength. It's not about doing religion. It's not about being good. It's about loving God with all you are. It's about being all in. And by the way, love your neighbor as yourself. And then he said something that was flat out mind-blowing. He said, you know what? That's not just the greatest commandment. Everything that has been taught up to this point, all of the law, we read it every week in synagogue, all of the law, all of the prophets, summarized in those two things, love God and love others. Later, he would tell a group of those who would be his followers, you know, I want you to really count the cost of this because it's a big deal following me. If you're going to go out and build a tower, you know, the first thing you do is you might try to hire someone like Jan and and you're going to want to negotiate a good contract because he's going to charge you too much. And then you want to measure... And you want to make sure that you've got a loan from a bank. You want everything in place. Before you get started, you don't want to just go over there and start cutting down some trees because you might get halfway through and not be able to finish. He said to them at another time, if any of you who are hearing me, if you really want to be my student, if you want to live like I live, if you want to have this kind of connection with God, it's like you've got to deny yourself. You've got to take up a cross, the instrument of your own death, and then just follow me. You've got to be all in with me. Let me approach this from another direction. In the 11th century, Bernard of Clairvaux was a reforming Catholic monk, and he redirected the Cistercian monk movement. He wrote a little treatise for young monks called On Loving God. And Uh, Part of that, he says that there are essentially four levels of loving God. This to me is profound and brilliant. Check this out. Bernard says the first level of loving God is to love yourself for your own sake. Not to hate yourself and not to love yourself because of your parents or what they want for you, but to love yourself for your own sake. The second stage of loving God, he said, is to love God for your own sake. And it seems to me that churches in America have done a really good job at teaching this level of loving God. You know, love God because there are lots of benefits for you in loving God, and there are. If you really go all in with God, there's a better chance, honestly, your marriage will be healthy. It's not a guarantee, but it's a better chance. If you go all in with God, there is a better chance that your kids will walk the right path for them. It's not a guarantee, but there's a better chance If you go all in on loving God, there's a better chance that you will live a life of peace and you'll have a sense of security. Profoundly so. There are benefits for you and I on loving God. And the second stage in loving God, Bernard said, is to love God for your own sake. But he said there's something deeper than that. The third stage of loving God, Bernard of Clairvaux said, is to love God for his own sake. Because he's God! Wow! Like Mike said earlier, whoa, we're flat out amazed. And then the other side said, whoa, except better than that. We're amazed at God because of who God is. We love God for God's sake. And I can remember the first time I read this, I was in seminary, and I realized after reading this, I barely understood that. For me, it was all about how it benefited me. But there is yet a fourth stage of loving God. Bernard said, the fourth stage of loving God is to love yourself for God's sake. To be so in with God that you see your life as an instrument of His use because He's God. And you get so swept up in the purpose of living for Him that it's as if you no longer live, but it's Christ who lives in you. I think that's where Paul was. I think that's how Paul accomplished what he accomplished. I want you to know, personally, I grew up in a deeply religious household. I've told you all before, those of you who have been part of Gateway, I grew up in you know, one of those Southern Baptist houses in the South where you went to church on Sunday morning and Sunday night, and if you're a real Christian, you went on Wednesday night. I used to give pins for going to church every Sunday. If you were in church every Sunday, you got a pen. I got six in a row when I was a kid. I told Diane we went to Pauly's Island this year for vacation. That's where my family went when we grew up. There was a little, you wouldn't call it a church, it was a building kind of over the water that, I don't know, seated 40, 50 people. It was falling down even then. I do not I can't believe it's still standing. They didn't even have Sunday school. My parents would take us to that church. We would have Sunday school. I'm not kidding. We would have Sunday school outside so that I could get my pen. And then we would go to church, and it would usually be, Somebody preaching and about four other people in my family and me sitting there roasting in a suit in the summer at Pawleys Island, South Carolina. Deeply religious family. But it never connected with me. It never worked for me. It never gave me life until I went all in. Until the trajectory of my life changed and I went all in. I think Paul accomplished what he accomplished simply because he went all in with Jesus. Okay, today, we get to celebrate Jesus' meal, the Lord's Supper, communion. It's a meal of mercy. So this is an opportunity for you and I to examine ourselves and to participate in the grace that he offers us, the grace that, of the Lord Jesus Christ, which God offers. So if you don't feel today like you deserve this, and I've talked to a couple of you this week, and I know some of you, you don't. I want you to know, welcome, you're in good company. I say occasionally at Gateway, this is a church full of hypocrites. We say one thing and do another. But we believe God loves us. If you've got it all together, this might not be the church for you. And this will not be the meal for you, because this is a meal of mercy. So if you're a guest today and you can participate in this meal in your fellowship, then we invite you to participate with us here in this one in ours. This is about you and I recognizing that we've blown it and that he's taken all of our blown it and he's wrapped that up and he offers instead his righteousness to us on his behalf. So we're going to begin that by, once again, offering Christ's peace to one another. And then we're going to enter into a time of confession. And then we're going to pass this meal today. Often at Gateway, we try to go to various places and have someone administer the meal to us. Today, we're going to be priests to one another. We're going to pass it down the aisles. So I'm going to ask you to stay organized and stay where you are. But if you would, let's stand together and pass Christ's peace to one another because it's a glorious peace. Remain standing. Let's go back to your seats and let's pray. But remain standing. Father, we confess this morning. This week, we have not loved you with our whole heart. And we have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. In a variety of ways, we've tried to find our meaning and our purpose and our pleasure apart from you, in spite of you. We ask you to forgive us and to have mercy. We're so thankful that you promised us that if we confess our sin the ways we've distanced ourselves from you, you'd forgive us and you'd cleanse us and purify us from all unrighteousness. We offer that confession to you now. We pray together as our Savior taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated except for those of you who are going to be administering communion. So here's how it will work. Someone will take one of these plates and pass it to you, and you will pass it to the person next to you, and you'll be a priest to them. And you'll say these remarkable words. Don't pass yet. You'll say these remarkable words. The body of Christ broken for you. The body of Christ broken for you. There are within little packets in each tray, um, gluten-free chips. So if you need to go gluten-free, we got you. So uh, let's pass the body of Christ to one another. Here's how it first happened. On the night he was betrayed, the night before his death, Jesus had arranged for the disciples to share the Passover meal with him. And... What he did is what no self-respecting rabbi would have ever done. He reinterpreted a meal that at that point was 1,400 years old. And he said, hey, this bread that we've been breaking for generations, that bread is me. It's my body. So that's why when we do this together, we say, the body of Christ broken for you. The body of Christ broken for you. Take it and eat. At the same meal, he took the cup. In the celebration of Passover meal, there are four different cups that signify four different things. Most scholars believe it was the cup of thanksgiving. Those of you who grew up in an Episcopalian setting or perhaps even a Lutheran setting, God's mercy meal is often called in that context the Eucharist. That's the Greek word for thanksgiving. Jesus took the cup of thanksgiving. And with that cup, they would have been remembering and being thankful for God's great deliverance of his people, out of Egypt. And especially they would have been remembering the lamb that was slain, whose blood saved their household from the angel of death. Jesus did an even wilder thing than the bread. He took that cup and he said, you know, you've been thankful for generations. That blood was mine. Be thankful. So priests, you're going to look at one another and say, the blood of Christ shed for the forgiveness of your sins. We believe that our connection to God has set us free and has given us life. At the very heart of that is this. This is at the heart of our freedom and at the heart of our life. So that's why periodically at Gateway we make it part of our tradition. So before you drink this, I want you to turn to somebody and say, Cheers! (laughs) Blood of Christ shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Take it and drink. (laughs) Last time we did that, I was on my way out and somebody said, did you really say cheers? I did. Speak to someone, go in peace and have a fantastic day.